Well, good morning. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to everybody who might be watching online. Thanks for joining us this morning. As Amisha shared, we're kicking off a new series today. It's a study through the book of 2 Timothy, and it's going to be called The Fight Worth Fighting. The fight worth fighting. It's not a bad idea to bring your Bibles to church, especially as we're going to be going through this book uh, section by section, chapter by chapter for the next several weeks leading into June. Um, Always appreciate being able to highlight, circle words, write stuff in the columns. Uh, So if you want to bring your Bible, that's a great idea. Or if you just want to keep it on your phone, your app, uh, that'll be helpful as well. All right, so 2 Timothy, you might want to go there now as we get ready to study the Word. You guys ready? All right, let's do this. Let's pray and then let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to lead us into it. Father God, thank you so much for uh, this glorious morning. God, it is by your grace that we were able to just wake up, open our eyes this morning and, and breathe. And so, God, I pray that we don't take that for granted, that we would um, use every breath that we have to just praise you. And so, thank you for this day. And as we get into your word God, that you would feed us this daily bread, that you would nourish our souls, and uh, I pray that it would make us strong, and it would make us healthy, God. God, I pray that our hearts right now would just really be open to you, and that our minds would be really uh, tuned in to what you want to say to us, God. Um, I thank you for friends, new friends this morning who might be visiting, guests who are here for the first time. Already got to meet a couple in the lobby right just before this. And so, Lord, Lord, thank you for bringing them. And I pray that you speak to each and every person here or listening, watching online. Speak to us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all say amen. Amen. You know, there could be uh, really grave consequences if you're caught for starting a fire. In 1990, there is this 35-year-old man named Julio Gonzalez, and he was in the Bronx in New York, and he got into a big fight with his ex-girlfriend, who at the moment was working at a social club called The Happy Land, and they got into a big fight, so in his anger, he storms off, and he goes to the nearby gas station, buys about a dollar's worth of gasoline, he goes back to The Happy Land social club, and he douses the entire entrance to the nightclub, the stairs, with that, that gasoline, and he lights it on fire. That trapped everybody in the social club killing almost everybody there that night. And up to that point in time, it was known as the worst mass murder in U.S. history. So people were furious that this man could do this when they caught him. Gonzalez was found guilty on 174 counts of murder and was sentenced to 25 years for each count. You do the math, that's 4,350 years that he would have to serve. That's obviously his whole life. That's a consequence. And then in 2006, if you're from Southern California, you might remember the Esperanza fire. The Esperanza fire burned over 41,000 acres. 34 families' homes were burnt to a crisp. And the worst part of this whole story is that five firefighters lost their lives trying to fight that fire. And when people found out that it was caused by an arsonist, meaning somebody did that intentionally, people were furious. Large groups got together, and, and about six of these groups got together, put together money, and said, we will give this financial reward to anybody leading to the information that's going to bring to justice, bring to this man's um, arrest. 
And so they put out this reward, and on June 5th of 2009, Raymond Lee Euler was caught, found guilty, and he wasn't sentenced to 4,350 years, but he was sentenced to death. He got the death penalty for starting the 2006 Esperanza fire. Could be brutal consequences for causing fires. Let me share with you one more story. We go back to AD 64. It's the first century. In the Roman Empire, there was a city, a great city called Rome, and a fire erupted, and it lasted for six nights and seven days. And when it finally was contained, when it finally died down, about 70% of Rome had been burnt down. People's lives were devastated, and people were very angry because there was suspicion that that fire that took out their city was caused by a man. And the theory was that that man was the emperor himself, Emperor Nero. Now, why would Emperor Nero do that to his own city, the great city of Rome? Well, history tells us he was very vain. And he had plans to renovate and reconstruct the city of Rome. He wanted to build palaces in his name, buildings in his honor, spend an extravagant amount of money to renovate Rome. And the Senate had shot it down. They said that that was way too expensive. That's way too much money. And so we're not going to do that. And so the theory was, or the suspicion was, that Nero secretly started the fire or had people start the fire to burn the city down so that they would have to rebuild according to his plans. Obviously, that's going to infuriate people. So he had to find a scapegoat. He had to find someone to blame. And he knew exactly who to put the blame on. It was the Christians. And that just made sense, right? Because Christians were already known as these these people who opposed the evil practices of of Rome. It was the Christians who would abstain from the sexual orgies and the drunkenness and the idol uh, worship that, that the Romans participated in. And so because there's already this reputation that Christians were trying to separate themselves and disagreed with Rome, it was them, it was the Christians who started the fire to burn it all down. And from that point on in history, historians tell us that that Christian persecution throughout the Roman Empire spread like wildfire. Pun kind of intended. Kind of, and I'll explain why I I say kind of. But from that point on, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that for the next few centuries, Christians would be persecuted for claiming the name of Jesus and following Christ. They would be arrested and, and killed. And one of the Christians who was arrested awaiting his trial, waiting to be beheaded ultimately, was this Christian by the name of Paul. The Apostle Paul, we know him as the one who had written about two-thirds of our New Testament. Wrote many letters and books to Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And this last one, as he's bound and he's in chains, and tradition has it that he was deep down in this dark, cold dungeon known as the Maritime Prison there in Rome. He's writing one last letter. It's his final words. We know as the book of 2 Timothy. And he's not writing to any church. You're going to see that this is his most personal letter he ever wrote. And it's to one person in particular. And it was his son in the faith, his spiritual son, Timothy. 
Timothy. And so we're going to read what Paul said to Timothy in this final book. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we are. I'm going to actually invite my son, Evan, to come out. In fact, I pulled my dad as well. So my dad and my son are going to come out and read the scriptures to us. Welcome them to the stage. This is my dad, Sidney. Some of you guys know him. This is my son, Evan. And so if you have your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're at. I'll start us off, and then I'm going to hand it off to my dad. It goes like this. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, oh my... Dad, you got to use the mic. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Praise God for his word. And I, what I want to do is I want to dive into that passage they just read for you and, and, and bring about this key idea. That what is inside of you ought to be shared with the world outside of you. That what is inside of us should be made known to the world outside of us. And as we work our way to that, that main idea, I want to share with you three things that I think we should apply to our lives as we consider what Paul said to Timothy. So three things. If you're taking notes, here's the first I want to share with you. First of all, acknowledge the faith inside of you. Acknowledge the faith inside of you. In particular, or specifically, the faith inside of you came from someone outside of you. Right? Consider your faith today. In this letter, Paul typically opens all his letters with thanksgiving. He finds something that's worthy of giving thanks for. And, and in this letter, as he's giving thanks, he acknowledges his ancestors, those who have gone before him. In verse 3, he says this. I'll read it again. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. 
And so what, what he's saying is, my faith today has a lot to do with my ancestors who worshiped the same God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the one true God. That's the people of Israel. Now, you look at their history, and was Israel always faithful? Were they always purely committed to God? No, not always. And yet even then, Paul could acknowledge that his current faith has a lot to do with the fact that they served that God and they handed down the, the traditions of his word. And so he's acknowledging the ancestors who had gone before him. And in the same way, he looks at Timothy, his spiritual son, not biological son, but his spiritual son. And he says in verse 5, he says, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith that first dwell in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so, Timothy, I see that you are a man of faith, but I see that it was a lie first in your grandma and your mom. They played a role in that. Now, show of hands, participate with me. Raise your hands if you have a parent, a mom or dad, or a grandparent who played a role in you coming to know about Jesus Christ. Anybody here? Amen. If you look around the room, a great majority of us, it's ha we have parents or grandparents who played a role in that. And so I think it's good for us to stop and acknowledge the faith inside of us and the fact that that came from someone outside of us. Maybe you didn't raise your hand. You didn't have a biological parent or grandparent who introduced you to Jesus, but there was somebody. And Paul tells us in Hebrews 13 verse 7, he says this. He says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so for, for you, maybe it was a leader in the church. Maybe it was a life group leader. Maybe it was a mentor, someone who discipled you. Maybe, maybe it was a pastor. Or maybe it was someone outside of church, a coworker or a neighbor, and they spoke the word of God into you. I met somebody just before I came up here. He said, my, my friend Rob, he's my neighbor. He's the one who spoke the word to me. And so maybe that's you today. Someone spoke words of life into you that helped change the way you think, who formed your, 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 your perspective and even your decisions. And so let's pause and let's acknowledge our spiritual heritage. Where did that come from? You know, uh, my wife and I, Monica, when we were uh, trying to figure out where to put our kids in school, you know, Evan was our first kid out of three. And so I remember there was a time we were trying to figure out, do we put him in public school or do we homeschool him? Right? Because we want to raise him in the Lord. And we didn't know if public school was the way to go. But, but if you've ever thought about homeschooling your kid, you're probably like me and you have a lot of questions. And maybe even preconceived notions and even stereotypes that, that you think of homeschooling. And so we went to this Christian homeschooling conference. And what was cool was there was this one session where it was going to be a Q&A. So if you're exploring homeschooling, you could ask all your questions. And it was, it was great because all, a lot of the questions that were being asked were the very same questions I had. But there's this one question I'll never forget. This one person asked, well, isn't Christian homeschooling basically indoctrinating your kids? Like if, if, if you're going to teach your kid Christian education and teach them a Christian perspective, aren't you basically indoctrinating, indoctrinating your kids, t teaching them what they should think and believe? 
And I loved the person's response. You know what her response was? She didn't hesitate. She, she said, is Christian homeschooling indoctrinating your kids? Yes. Next question. Any other questions? <laughs> She's very straightforward. She was just like straight up. Yes, it is. But, but she said this. Think about what does it mean to indoctrinate and tell me why that's a bad thing. Right? If to indoctrinate someone is to really take a doctrine and instill it in their heart, is that a bad thing for your child when the reality is they're going to be indoctrinated wherever they go to learn from? Whether it's from this other person in a classroom or whether they watch a movie in a theater or go on this social platform on social media, they're being indoctrinated constantly. And so you as a parent who brought them into this world, you're supposed to be their protector, the lover of their soul, to, to love them in the best way possible. Now remind me, why is it so bad to teach your child how to think? Do you want them to be indoctrinated with the doctrines of the world, which is going to be inevitable, or do you want to instill in them the doctrines of the word? And for me, I heard that answer. I was like, mm, that's pretty good. That's pretty good because as a man who believes that these are the words of eternal life, that these are the words of truth, I want good, true doctrine in my child's heart. And so did I homeschool my kid? No, we didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, we didn't. Why? Well, because the, the situation at that time in our family and our lives just didn't allow for it. But we did put them in a Christian school. They're at Christian, uh, Valor Christian Academy, which is a great school. But for that reason, because I want my kids to learn good doctrine. That's not a bad thing. And with that being said, I want to say that if your kids aren't in Christian private school and they're in public school, that's okay too. I'm just saying that's just one way we consider how can I raise my child in the Lord? I went to public school my whole life, never been in a Christian school. And there are other ways that my parents raised me in the Lord. But I, I want to encourage you, parents and grandparents, I want to remind you what you already know, but I'm going to just say it out loud once again. The value of passing down the things that are of eternal worth are invaluable. You teaching your kids the things of God, you praying with your kids each and every day, you taking life lessons and pointing them to Jesus, you showing them the ways of the Lord, that is the best legacy you could possibly leave for your children. It is the most eternal way you could possibly love them. And I want to say this to parents, do not underestimate the power of your prayers for your children. I say that with a smile on my face. I, I, I love every time there's a parent in the church who asks for prayers from the pastors for their kids because they're concerned about the way their kids are going, my kid's not going to church. And I always say with excitement and encouragement, with a smile on my face, do not stop praying for them. Don't underestimate the prayers of a parent. Why do I say that? Because I am living testimony of that. My, my mom is here, my dad is here, and they did all they could to raise me in the instruction of the Lord. They brought me to church and all that, but, but I know that at some point, they understood that I'm ultimately going to make my own decisions. 
They saw the friends that I ran with. They saw the, the people I chose to date. They, they knew that I was going to choose my own career, my own job, and, and my own wife one day. And at some point, I remember my mom sharing with me, at some point she realized all I could do was surrender it to God. Implying she had no idea how I'd, I would ultimately turn out. Greg's in God's hands. And she said, all I could do was just pray, 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 constantly pray for you. And I could say it's, it's in large part due to their prayers that I stand where I stand today. And that's spiritually but also physically where I stand. The fact that I get to stand on the stage and deliver the word of God to you has so much to do with the faithful prayers of my parents. So do not underestimate praying for your children, even when it feels like it's out of your hands. Now, for those of you who aren't parents or grandparents, you don't have children, that's okay. This applies to you just as much. There are people in your life that, I believe the Lord wants you to pass it on to. Maybe it's the kids in your classroom. Maybe it's your friends in your dorm rooms. Maybe it's your coworkers in your department. Maybe it's your neighbor next door. The faith inside of you came from someone. Who can you pass it on to? Maybe for some of you, there's somebody in this church that you can disciple. Maybe, men, there's a Timothy out here. Women, maybe there's a Tiffany out here that, that you're supposed to pour into. And Paul in this letter, he starts with thanksgiving, acknowledging spiritual heritage. Timothy, your mom and your grandma, me, my ancestors, but we have to go on. Because we know that ultimately when you get a baton passed to you, it's, it's in your hands. And what you do with it now is up to you. And so he goes on in verse 6 and 7. He says this, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So here's the second thing we should apply. Write this down. Fan the flame inside of you. You not acknowledge the faith inside of you, but fan the flame of the gift that's inside of you. I had my dad up here and my son up here because I needed help reading the scriptures. I think that's a beautiful thing to do publicly. But, but also, I, I wanted to show you this, this line in my own family. What was passed on to me, I, I want so desperately to pass on to my child. But, but something I am so aware of more than ever, more than ever in my whole career as a parent is the fact that just because daddy is a pastor at South Bay Community Church, just because mommy serves in kids crew, does not guarantee your salvation. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because you're going to have exposure to, to leadership in the church and opportunities to stand on the stage and, and read scripture does not mean you're going to heaven. Pastor Corey, he spoke to us uh, not too long ago, and I, I'll never forget what he said. He says, God has no spiritual grandchildren. There's no spiritual grandchildren in heaven, meaning you can't ride into heaven hanging on to the coattails of your parents' salvation. That each of us, whether you are 9 years old or 19 years old or 90 years old, we all have a responsibility, a personal responsibility to put our faith in Jesus Christ. 
And when you do, then you become, you become a son of God. You become a daughter of God. There are no spiritual grandchildren in heaven. We do not get saved by association. You don't get grandfathered in. But we become sons and daughters when we decide for ourselves. And so Evan understands that. We talked this week. Your faith is your own. Your life is yours to steward. You need to choose Jesus yourself. And so it's like Paul saying to uh, Timothy, I, you know, your, your grandma and your mom have sincere faith, and now I see this faith in you. But it's like he's saying, Timothy, now make it your own, fan it into flame, and make sure that the gift inside of you is being used to make what's inside of you known outside of you. Use the gifts you have to share your faith and advance the gospel that's been placed inside of you. Now, what, what gifts? What gifts are we talking about? Well, Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, uses the very same language, so we have an idea of what he's talking about. And he said in that chapter, in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, he said, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And so right there, his gift, his gift in particular was the presentation of God's word. Whether that was through reading or through preaching or through teaching, you've been given the ability to make God's word known to people. Don't neglect that gift. Fan it into flame. And so why why does Paul use that language? Why this word picture of fanning the flame of your gift? Well, I love that if you understand Paul's teaching, a lot of times he uses this picture of fire to demonstrate what an active faith looks like. And and so he's basically saying, activate your gifts, put it into action, simply preach it, teach it, and make it useful and effective. It's kind of like this. Uh, The last summer, we took our kids camping for the first time. I, I... I spent a lot of my college and young adult years camping, and so I was excited that we finally, as a family, got to go to Sequoia National Park and showing our kids what it's like to camp. And one of my favorite things, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things about camping is the campfire, right? And, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a, a guy thing, so maybe you guys understand this, but building a fire out of nothing is so rewarding, Amen. Like you take, you take these wood, you take all, all these wood pieces and you put coil and putting it in just the right way and learning to light that so that it actually catches and becomes a legitimate fire. I love that. And this past camping trip, um, I learned how to make cowboy coffee. You guys know what cowboy coffee is? It's when you, you take a uh, kettle and you boil water straight over the campfire. You put the coffee grinds in it, and, and it, it's cowboy coffee. And so, so I'm trying to perfect this because you have to have the right amount of water. You have to have the right amount of grinds. And so I kept messing up, so I had to pour it out and do it all over again. I'm trying to perfect it and, and make the right cup of cowboy coffee. And so I'd have it on, on the fire, and... Over time, you know, if you've been at a campfire, if you don't do anything to the flames, eventually what happens? It dwindles to the point of flamelessness, right? You wait long enough, that flame will disappear. And so that's what happened. Our, our campfire went out, and, and I remember saying, hey, kids, watch daddy. Watch daddy. You see no fire, right? 
I'm going to make fire appear, right? And so I get down, and it's warm. The embers are still hot, but there's no flame. And I go, watch, Daddy, watch, watch. I get, I get a paper plate, and I fan it. And as long as I have this consistent flow of air, something's happening, and all of a sudden, right? That fire appeared out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, you got flames again. And now that there's flames being applied to that kettle, now the water's boiling, and what do we got? Cowboy coffee. Yeah, right? Like, like, but you need, you need fire. You need to fan the flame. Otherwise, it's useless. It's ineffective. And so, Timothy, there's a gift inside of you. Don't let it dwindle down to ineffectiveness. Fan the flame. Activate it. Use it. Let it impact and benefit those outside of you. So why? Why this reminder? Well, why is Paul reminding Timothy to use your gifts? And I think if you take these two verses out of context by itself, it might sound like we're just supposed to use our gifts, which is true. Just use your gifts. You have a gift, use it. That's true, but put it in context, and I'm glad we're going through the entire book, but what's the context of the entire chapter? And what's the, in fact, the, the context of the entire book? I think Paul is saying to Timothy, use your gifts. Why? Because this is a fight worth fighting. In the face of worldly opposition, in the face of Christian persecution that we're living in here in Rome in the first century under Nero, fight this good fight. This is worth fighting. Fan it into flame. And he's saying to Timothy, speak up. Don't shut up. Shout out your faith. Don't shrink back in faith. This is the time to fight on. Preach the word of God. And so in verse 4, as he writes this, he says, I, I remember your tears as I'm writing you this letter. Why are there tears? Why are you crying, Timothy? And some people think it's because Paul's in prison. And there's that, that, that pulling away, this ripping away of father and son in the spirit. And so, like, he's crying because he's sad that Paul's going into prison. But I'm wondering if there's more to it that, that would have mingled in those tears is the fact that not only is he being ripped away from me, but there's this reality setting in that persecution is real. As I see my spiritual father about to get beheaded, what they're doing to my spiritual father could be done to his spiritual son. That's me. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's this fear. These, these tears are tears of fear. And he goes on in the next verse in verse 7. Listen, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit. He's given you a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Another version says God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity. Timothy, but of love, of power, and self-control. So don't shrink back. Fight on. Preach the word. Don't let your faith and give dwindle to uselessness. Fan the flames. Don't let Satan blow it out. Activate your faith. Which brings us to the final verses of today's passage, 
Go with me to verse 8 and 9 again. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Skip down to verse 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, guard this good deposit. What's been placed inside of you, guard it. So here's the last thing, if you're taking notes. Number three, guard the gospel inside of you. You guard the gospel inside of you. What does that mean, to guard this deposit? That means don't change it. Don't alter it. Don't water it down, but as you received it, preach it in its purest and truest form. You know, if you, if you read all that Paul wrote to Timothy, count it up, 25 times Paul tells Timothy in some form or another, don't be afraid, be strong, be courageous, don't fear, 25 times. And so commentators conclude that that means Timothy was a coward. He was weak, weak sauce. He needed encouragement and strength from his spiritual father. That's why Paul has to keep telling him to be strong. But I'm wondering if, man, maybe we're being a little too harsh on Timothy. What if he wasn't a coward? What if he was just a normal guy but living in extraordinary circumstances? An ordinary guy under extraordinary persecution and hostility toward Christianity. What if he's not that different from us? In fact, if you read on in the next verse, in verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, you know that everybody in Asia has abandoned me. All those Christians who once walked with me, they have all abandoned me. I wonder why. Maybe because persecution was real. And all of them are walking away from the faith, but no, you, Timothy, be strong. Emperor Nero, I told you as we opened up this message, I said that the persecution of Christians began to spread like wildfire. I said pun kind of intended because it did. Persecution began to spread like wildfire figuratively but, but also literally. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that Christians would be taken, bound, alive, dipped in oil or wax and then tied to posts in his garden lit on fire alive to provide light for his personal garden. That's Nero. Tacitus always also tells us that it was Nero who would take Christians, he would clothe them in animal skin, he would skin animals alive, clothe them, and then throw them into the arena, the Circus Maximus there in Rome. And they would get mauled by wild beasts Animals, they'd be mauled to death as everyone in the arena would watch in entertainment. Isn't that lovely? That's sick. That's Nero. And so if you were a Christian in Timothy's day, you could be mauled alive. You could be lit on fire alive. You could be crucified like Peter was, or you could be beheaded like Paul was. And so the struggle was real. And so as as Paul is writing this final word to Timothy in this dark, cold dungeon. 
there in Rome, waiting to be beheaded. Maybe it's not that Timothy is such a coward. I mean, how, how do we understand this letter that Paul's writing in a dark, cold dungeon, waiting to be beheaded as we're listening to this in our nice, comfortable chairs here in sunny Southern California? Like, this is our situation. And yet, why do we stay silent about our faith? Why do we stutter over what the Bible really says? Why is it hard for us? And I get it. I get it. It's treacherous out there. Pastor Greg, they could unfollow me on Instagram. It's wild. They could unfriend me on Facebook. Treacherous. It's, it, the struggle's real. I know, and as pastors, I know the temptation too. Sometimes I'm tempted not to preach what the word fully says. Why? Because our attendance could drop. People might stop coming to our church. And so though the days were totally different, and it could be laughable at what causes us to stay silent or stutter over what is true, the temptation is still the same today, the temptation to hide or abandon our faith, the temptation to water it down or to alter it to make it more palatable or attractive so that people would, would fill our seats. And yet Paul says to Timothy, he charges him, guard the gospel inside of you. Protect that. Don't be ashamed of it, he says in verse 8. Hold to the pattern of sound doctrine, verse 13. Guard the deposit entrusted to you, verse 14. Guard the gospel. So that's what's inside of you, Timothy. The faith that's been passed on to you, the gift that you ought to fan into flame in this gospel that's been deposited inside of you. So what's the point? Here's the main point. Timothy, take what's inside of you and perfectly present it to those outside of you. Take what has been placed inside of you and share it with the world outside of you and the people around you. And this, Timothy, is a fight worth fighting. Fight on. Don't shrink back, fight on. And that's a good fight that Paul has fought as he comes to the end of his life. If anything, son, look to me as your example. He says in verse 12, he says, look, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. He's not boasting in himself. I'm not ashamed, but I'm not boasting in me. I'm boasting in him. It's not what I believe. It's who I believe. Who is it that he believes in? In verse 10, he says, here's who I believe in. Christ Jesus, who who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He brought light and immortality. Highlight those two words, life and immortality. That means we don't die. And because of this promise of life, he resolves to fight the good fight even to the point of physical death. In fact, verse 1, as he opened up this letter, how did he introduce himself? He says, hi, I'm Paul. I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 1, by the will of God according to what? The promise of life. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Why is this a fight worth fighting? even to the point of dying? Because Jesus is life. 
and he promises me life. And you have to understand, this isn't just motivational speaking that Paul's got here. He's not just, it's not the power of the mind. It's not positive thinking. Who does Paul know? I know who I believe. Who does he believe in? Jesus. Can I remind you, how did Paul meet Jesus? Paul was a hater on Christians. He himself was on the way to Damascus to persecute and punish Christians. That's what he was out to do. Who intervenes and meets him on the road to Damascus? Jesus. Encounters him so powerful that, that, that Paul's practically blind. But think about this. When did he meet Jesus? After Jesus had already died. This is the book of Acts. Jesus died back in the book of Luke. But he's before me. He's alive. My life is radically changed. And so who do I believe in? It's not what I believe, Timothy. It's whom I believe. His name is Jesus. It's like I know him. He died. He rose. He's mine. I'm his. He lives. And so alive forever and ever and ever. Timothy, fight on. Let's praise the Lord. I think that's worthy of praise. I love that in the first letter to Timothy, he says, Timothy, teach the people in Ephesus, the church that you're pastoring, teach them to invest in eternal things. Invest in, eternal, in eternity. And then he says, this is why in 1 Timothy 6, 19, the final words of that book, he says, that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. I love that. That they might know this life that is truly life. Friends, understand that there is a life that is truly life, and I'll give you a hint, it's not this one. It's not the one here on earth. There's a life that is truly life, and we often think that my best life is now. This is the best and truest sense of life, and so we'll do anything to avoid death. We'll do anything to, to, to prolong my life. And so we'll change our eating habits and we'll take these vitamins and I'll work out this many times and I'll do all these things to prolong my life because I, I hate death. And if that's you, if you do these things to live longer, don't stop that. Don't change that. That's okay. We should steward this life that God has given us. It's a good life. But understand this. There's a point where we get to where we feel like this is the best possible life and that's just not true. Because there's... A life that is truly life. And I hope that you understand that all of us, the moment we were born and brought into this world, we're already moving closer to the end of our life on earth. That every moment when we're brought into this world and every minute that passes, I'm only getting closer to the end of my life. I'm getting closer to death. That's true for every single one of us. Some of us, it's a daily reality, the, the evidence that I'm getting closer to the end. For me, at this point in my life, I'm telling you, as the days go on, my skin is not getting smoother. <laughs> and my hair is not getting darker. My line is not going this way. It's going this way. Right? My eyes are not getting better. I, I can't even see you right now. <laughs> That's the truth. I'm just moving closer to the end of my time on earth. And some of you are thinking, Wow. What a downer message, Pastor Greg. But that's such a downer, right? If you're new to this church, welcome. <laughs> this is what we talk about. 
<laughs> no, it's not a downer if you have faith inside of you that reminds you that death is not departure from this life. Death is only a doorway into the life that is truly life. And so we'll live this life to the fullest on purpose, asking God for us to make the most out of it, but we look forward to the life that is truly life. So Timothy, fear not. What's the worst they can do to you? Kill you? You'll live on. Let what is inside of you be made known to the world outside of you, to everyone around you. I'll close with this quote. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought most about the next. The ones who did most in this world, who took what was inside of them, to make it known to the world around them are the ones who understood that there's a life that is truly life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's fight on. Would you pray with me? So, Father God, we want to respond and just really thank you for this life that you've given us. Lord, we don't take that for granted. And we don't want to minimize what you've given us. We want to maximize this life. We want to be faithful with it. We want to be bold and courageous with it. So help us to really stop and reflect what's inside of us. And, and with thankfulness, acknowledge that somebody spoke it into us. So, someone passed it on to us. And God, help us now to, in, in thankfulness and in gratitude, with courage, help us to now take that and pass it on. And God, we know that that's, it's hard. We joke around, but Lord, it is hard. There is temptation to shrink back and, and to watch what we say. But Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and courage, just like you gave Timothy. That you would give us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to, to say what we need to say. And God, I pray that in it we would communicate love. That it's because we love those in our lives, we want them to experience life that's truly life. So help us to be able to speak well and to speak clearly and help people to understand this gospel you've given us. Thank you, God. Lord, we can't help but just respond and worship you. So with every breath that we have, we want to worship you. and We want to declare what we believe. We believe in you, God. We believe in your son. We believe in your Holy Spirit. We cry that out loud with great faith and courage. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.